Hello and welcome to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Ann Brannan, and I'm your host in Albuquerque. And I'm Michelle Butler in Tuscaloosa. And we really enjoy doing this work for the podcast. We really enjoy that that's why we're doing it. It's not for money, it's for fun. And we like it on the times when we get to learn a lot about something we didn't really know about. And we also like it on the times when we get to talk about something that really we we kind of know. This isn't our bailiwick. This is, we're talking today about the St. Scholastica Day Riot, the 10th of February, 1355 in Oxford. And the town gown issues. Yeah, we got that. We love that. In short, this was a three-day riot in the center of Oxford between students of Oxford and the townspeople, and it has long, deep roots in university town history, and it's got long-lasting effects, and so that's what it was. It's a terrible, horrible riot, whereas Michelle puts it, 93 people die in a fight over bad alcohol. We're visiting the hallowed, dignified halls of 14th century Oxford. Yeah, we're in agreement. We don't want to hear anything (laughs) about how, you know, the university used to be so much more dignified. No, it wasn't. It wasn't then. It wasn't in like the 1950s even. So let's just stop. Anyway, our background. The um, the University of Oxford had been around since at least 1096, at least in terms of people teaching something but became recognizable as a university in about the middle of the 12th century. Now, there's a story, and you're going to hear the story. There was a story that the university happened because English students got barred by the King of England, who was being Henry II at that time, that English students got barred from attending the University of Paris. (laughs) But there isn't actually any real evidence about that. And so maybe that happened, but probably not. But at any rate, at the time that Oxford gets started, there's the University of Bologna, there's the University of Paris, and now there's the University of Oxford. We talked about Paris, the University of Paris, which was started really about 1150 in the podcast that we did on the University of Paris strike, where where there was a different riot that also lasted for quite some time. And the actual issue, the fundamental issue is how it is that cities, that the city and the university would be organized. That is that the townspeople are governed by secular law and the university is governed by church law, like at that time, not anymore, that's over. But at any rate, it was at that time governed by church law because the universities, all all the scholars and teachers are also clergymen, or at least they're clerics, because the universities were formed out of the church schools. And that was where any formal education happened in medieval Europe. If you were male, but not a clergyman, or if you were female, you could be educated. You could learn to read and write. You could learn all sorts of stuff, but it would be done through tutors and not through schools or university. Heloise being an example. And we refer you to our previous podcast on Heloise and Abelard. Abelard was a professor at the University of Paris and he was tutoring Heloise and then they ended up in, well, different circumstances, but you can go hear about that. So the problem for the townspeople then is that the students who were in general younger than university students today tended to behave badly. I'm sure you're really shocked by this. Are you shocked by this, Michelle? I have lived in 
university towns since I was 18 years old. This is my third one. The kind of tensions that existed in the 12th century are the same tension. They really are. They're exacerbated by the organization and that the, that the students do not, are not governed by secular law. It, but this, basically it's there, which is that the students are badly behaved and a little snooty. They're a little snooty, Michelle when it comes to the rest of the town. I don't know. That's just how it is. And when the students, so back at this time, when the students behave badly, the local constables could basically do nothing about it because the students were clergymen and so therefore subject to church laws. So unless the monarch of the area got involved, the townspeople were essentially helpless. Now, with the University of Paris strike, the royalty gets involved and what they say causes the bailiffs to go kill students because they seem to have misunderstood things. So it isn't always great that the royalty gets involved, but that's the only authority above. You can go to the bailiffs or you can go to the, the, the church court. So besides that, there's another thing too, which is that the universities grew, they became very, very rich. And they bought up all the property around themselves and they got bigger and bigger. This is still going on. I mean, I used to live in Berkeley and Berkeley is like eating up more and more and more of the houses around it. They kind of like, they disappear. They get rolled over by the Berkeley juggernaut and turned into university buildings. And the same thing's going on here in Albuquerque. We've got um, the big university. That's where the law school is and the medical school is. And they... There's a whole new thing going on for the medical school. They ate up some more property and I don't know what they're building, something or other, but I'm sure we'll all be much more healthy after they do. So that was what was going on then. I remember being in Cambridge and like walking down from High Street down to the river, going down Mill Street. Well, you can walk down Mill Street. There used to be a mill at the end of it. You can walk down Mill Street and then you have to stop because there's a university building in the way and you kind of like have to walk and go around it and then you're on Mill Street again. That's the kind of thing that universities did and still do. It pisses the townspeople off. Also, their rules overrode town rules quite often. So in fact, usually that, for instance, in Cambridge, a little later than this, uh, Cambridge made a rule that the Cambridge University made a rule that traveling players could not, not only could they not play in Cambridge, the town, but when I think it's about a five mile radius of ground, which means that if you lived in Cherry Hinton, you couldn't have the, have the traveling players come by because Cambridge University said no. And this also pisses the town people off. So you might ask, well, why do towns put up with this at all? Why don't they just kind of like get rid of all this? Well, they kind of did during the Paris strike because then the university wasn't there for how many years was it? Do you remember? Yeah, it was a Was while. it three years, Michelle? Mm. And so for three years, what happened was that the students who do a lot of needing lodging and food and beer the students weren't there. Oh, and books. They also were buying books. The students weren't there. So who do you sell this stuff to? Well, the economics of the town, not doing so well. So it's one of those things. You depend for your living on the very people who annoy you deeply. The same thing happens in a different kind of way if you are living in a tourist town. Mm, Yeah, because the tourists come through, don't they? And so like, oh, let's say, I mean, we love you tourists. All of you who want to come visit Albuquerque and give us your money. We love you, love you, love you. Please do so. But but while it's like the summer and you're going to Old Town or while it's October and you're coming to the Balloon Festival, the town's kind of full of tourists and things are very, very different. But we love you. We love you very much. It's not just your money. Really, I mean this. So it's the same kind of tension. I've been told by people who live in Hawaii that it's the same, <laughs> the 
same kind of thing. Are you familiar with this, Michelle? Have you ever lived in a tourist town? No, but my friends in Ireland say that it's like that, that there's a there's a real kind of um, tension between wanting the Irish Americans, you know, the Americans of Irish descent to come there and spend money, which certainly helps, and feeling like their culture has become a theme park. I've been told this is called paddywhackery. <laughs> Yeah. I don't think we have a word for it in New Mexico. Although if I'm going by one of the little stores selling things to tourists and I see dream catchers, I, I really want to poke something in my eyes. I mean, I don't know whether you, uh, Michelle knows this because she, you know, Michelle knows this, I know, but you know, the, you remember Michelle that not all Native American tribes are the same thing, are they? No. I, I, I learned this as an adult, but I, I learned it as an adult, but I know it now. Yes, because Michelle comes over to Albuquerque to visit things. So, uh, so the town needs the university. And, uh, and that's beside the fact that the nobility and royalty were not only supporting uh, the university colleges, but like creating them, endowing them. That's why they're named things like King's College or Queen's College or Pembroke or Merton or whatnot. So um, the university brought in money, the students needed lodging, they needed food and ale and books, and the town merchants relied on that. So, oh well, on to our story. The Paris strike that was so big was in 1229, but in Oxford, this strike in 1355 happened not long after the Black Death, which happened not long after the Great Famine. And so economic stability had more or less gone out the window because there had been massive population losses that leads to um, a lot of social changes. There were fewer workers, of course, so work was more valued, but the town and the university were both suffering financially. So that didn't help relations either. It just kind of doesn't. I mean, you know, you need more money. Money is a good lubricant and lack of money is a very bad one. So um, there had been over the centuries, even before the Great Famine and the Black Death, there had been over the centuries, lots and lots of incidents which fed the, the dislike that the town and students had for each other. And in 1209, Cambridge was founded, for instance. And the story is, and I think we actually do have some evidence for this, not so sure. In 1209, the town had lynched two scholars after a woman had been murdered and a whole bunch of the scholars just up and left. They went to Cambridge and founded Cambridge, which is the other big um, old university in England. And periodically students kill townspeople or townspeople kill students. And those incidents might lead to excommunication and fines um, for the culprits when they were townspeople, not so much when they were students. And town constables would get involved in these incidents very often, rather than actually helping out. They would beat up students also. And this, oh, and the students were also rioting among themselves. You don't want to think that the students of Oxford were only going and beating up townspeople. No, no. They also beat up each other and killed each other occasionally, you know. So that had been going on for centuries, and now it's 1355. So here's what happened. There were some students in the center of town at the Swindlestock Tavern, which was a regular student hangout. Michelle finds this an hilarious name. I do know. What were you expecting? <laughs> <laughs> so they were hanging out there. And it's not there anymore, but there's a plaque. You can go see the plaque. And this is really the center of town. That tavern is there from 1250 to 1709. It's a long time. <laughs> Yeah, well, it gets a little beat up during this, I'll tell you. 
So um, there's a plaque. You can go see the plaque. And so these students were drinking and they didn't like the wine, which they considered inferior. And John de Croydon, John de Croydon, who had served them the wine, wouldn't listen to Roger de Chesterfield and Walter de Springhouse, two of the scholars. Now, I want to say here that I find this, this is another thing I find hilarious. You would think looking at these names, if you weren't examining, that these are like nobility of Anglo-Norman stock, de Croydon, de Chesterfield, de Springhouse, but it's pretty much a name like saying Anne de Albuquerque. It's really, it's not a big time name. These are just some people. Roger de Chesterfield and Walter de Springhouse were a couple of clergymen. They were scholars and they were clergymen. And when they complained and asked for better wine, there were snappish words, we are told snappish words, exchanged. And then to Chesterfield threw his uh, inferior wine into de Croydon's face, apparently, because he got incensed with de Croydon because de Croydon was, quote, stubborn and saucy. <laughs> so after he threw the wine in his face, he threw his wood, either he threw his wooden mug at Croydon's head or he beat him over the head with the wooden mug. What exactly he did depends on whether you're reading the students or the townspeople's reports. The townspeople said he got beat up. And so then lots of people in the tavern got involved, as happens even today sometimes. And so, the, but the fight got so, so very riotous that it went out into the street. And then the two factions went and rang bells. Um, the townspeople rang the bell at St. Martin's Church, which was the official church for the town. And the students rang the bells at St. Mary the Virgin, which was the university church. They're about two blocks from each other, maybe three. They're not that far from each other, sorry. But they're on they're like they're both on the high street. You have to go, here's one, here's the other thing. So they rang rang the bells. And I, I think I understand from this that you can tell the difference. Well, of course you would be able to, wouldn't you? Because you, you the bells of the churches in Oxford are gonna all ring, some of them at the same time, and you have to know when it is that you are being called to your church. Okay. So they rang the bells and the chancellor, the university chancellor came. He tried to try to calm everybody down. I, I envision this as like in those, you know, those Western movies when the sheriff comes out to try to keep people from lynching. He says, now, Martha, you remember that he helped you. You know, I, I think it's like that. It didn't work. <laughs> and people shot arrows at him. So he left so much for that. Uh, surprisingly, at the end of the fighting that night, nobody was dead or even wounded. So one day of fighting. So far, so good. Except the chancellor, uh, whose authority had been mightily vexed by having arrows shot at him, tried to fix everything. And he did this by proclaiming at these churches, these two churches, that no one is allowed to carry weapons or disturb the peace. And the town magistrate supported him. So this is like an early form of weapon control. Didn't work any more than gun control has been working lately for some of us. Okay. So they didn't listen to him, even though the town magistrate and the chancellor of the university were saying, put your weapons down, everybody be polite, be nice. Nobody listened. Maybe they would have, I don't know, maybe they would have. But the town bailiffs were not only urging the townspeople to arm themselves, which was, of course, not their job, bad bailiffs. They were also paying people from the towns nearby to come join the fight. Okay. The townspeople did arm themselves, didn't they? And there was a church where they knew some scholars to be. And so they killed uh, one of the students. They injured some more and they shot at the master of theology and they chased him all around. 
and the bells of the two churches got rung again, and the students barricaded the town gates. Although, unfortunately, they didn't barricade the West Gate well enough to keep a couple of thousand locals from coming in. With They had banners and they were yelling things. Because <laughs> you would say to yourself, okay, why... I, I said, I, I think I covered this because you might otherwise say to yourself, why would local people who are not in the town be so upset at the university? And the answer is that the university has really big britches and has been making everybody behave. It, and, and so nobody, they all hate him. All right, there they were. And the students barricaded themselves into their various halls. And the citizens who were following the completely disorganized manners of all rioters everywhere, not only killed all the students they saw, you remember they can be recognized, right? Because they're wearing clerical gowns. So they killed all the students they could find. And they also broke into local inns and hostels and they drank and ate everything. (laughs) It's really bad. Anyway, some people are dead. It's not funny, Anne. Stop it. And then evening came and it was the end of that day. And so the rioting died down and both town and university authorities went around proclaiming that it was not okay to injure the scholars. Don't do that. But then it was morning. So because the townspeople and the local citizens were just not done yet, they did not pay attention to the king. This was Edward III, who was nearby issuing proclamations. I myself personally, if Edward III told me to do anything, I would do it. But they didn't pay attention. So instead of behaving, they continued to kill any students they could find and break into inns and university halls and scalp students. They, they moved on the third day, they moved on to scalping students and also taking students' corpses and throwing them into gutters and dunghills and privies and into the Thames. And then after that, it was evening again, the end of the third day, and the townspeople were a little tired, and the scholars had fled out of the city, and a whole bunch of the town was burnt down. One of these details, by the way, is that Merton College was pretty much left alone. And I'm like, why? That's a, well, the students were so well-behaved. I'm thinking that doesn't make any sense. But also because it's built out of stone. But is it the only one? But at any rate, Merton College did not get trashed. So, yay. At any rate, everything was over, and the numbers I've seen range from 75 to 100 people altogether were dead. Michelle says it's 93. Why don't we go with Michelle? That seems to be the consensus of what I was looking at, but the likelihood that we know a precise number is not good. Yeah. Nah. It was a lot. 75 to 100. Yeah, but you can say 93 because, you know, it's a good number. It not one of those round numbers that make you think that maybe everything's being made up. So the king took over, he put, he sent judges in, and uh, the end of all that was that all of the scholars were pardoned, and the university rights returned. But as for the town, the bailiffs, who really had been very bad, let's, you know, I mean, they had been monstrously bad. The bailiffs were put in prison, uh, along with the mayor, but I'm not sure about that, because I don't know what the mayor was doing, but I, I don't know, maybe, you know, acting in cahoots with the bailiffs. And the town got fined what amounts to about 330 pounds and was under interdict. So they couldn't, they didn't have mass and they couldn't have burials and marriages. Newborn babies were allowed to be baptized, but that was basically it. So they're under interdict. And then after that, in June, because you remember this riot was in February, Edward gave the university even more rights. They got to tax the food and drinks sold in the town, and they got to act like an annoying HOA and make everybody keep their property up to the university standards. Those of you who aren't perhaps in America, HOA would be the Homeowners Association, where if you, whereas we're in, in America, if you buy a home, 
that is under the jurisdiction of a homeowners association. They don't let you do whatever they put into their rules. You couldn't do like put flamingos on plastic flamingos on the lawn, for instance, or you have to keep the grass a certain height and can't have art of different sorts displayed that they don't like. At any rate, the university was an HOA really. And there were some other financially nice things and the town, bless their hearts, was allowed to deal with any disputes and and problems in Oxford that had to do with the citizens. But if there was a student involved, the university was in charge. And, and was that all? No, it was not. The bishop did lift the interdict. Okay, so people were, they were allowed to go to mass and get buried and get married and things like that. But he imposed a penance on the town, which was every year on St. Scholastica's Day, 60 of the townspeople, along with, of course, the, the mayor and the bailiffs also, had to at- attend mass for those killed in the riot and pay an annual fine to the university of a penny for each student killed. And all the new mayors, as time went on, had to swear to uphold whatever the damn university said. And now this did not end either the tension or the conflicts. There was, But there was never another bloody riot like that. The university had become dominant power in the town. It had much more power than it had before. That's what happened in Paris, too, after the strike. Because there, the scholars and students left for three years and things fell all to hell and gone financially. So both cases, the townspeople were not actually helped by this, although I gather that they enjoyed killing the students. I gather they had some fun there. But it was short-lived. And there were more fights, but there was n- this, nothing of this nature ever went on. Now, the penance got dropped in 1825. Which is one of the reasons that, you know, you can find Victorian postcards of the St. Scholastica riots. I mean, this, the St. Scholastica riots stayed in the popular imagination. And one of the reasons is that it got pulled up every year because the, because the town had to go pay the university. Almost 500 years. <laughs> so it adds up and they weren't paying interest, but every year it was only, you know, well, and the pennies got worth like less and less, actually, as time went on. Anyway, the penance got dropped. And the reason it got dropped is that the mayor said no. And everybody said, oh, okay. And so they dropped it. That had happened once before, but the mayor got fined. That was some years before that. But by 1825, everybody's like, oh, whatever. And this is important. On February the 10th, 1955, the 600th anniversary of the St. Scholastica riots, the university gave the mayor of Oxford an honorary degree. And the town made the vice chancellor of the university a freeman of the city. Da, 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 da. So this is very meaningful. But at that point, times was, were different. And all of that was because, although the university continued to be this major financial and political player in the city, this is true of all college towns where the universities are basically bigger than the town itself. The university and the town no longer operated under different legal jurisdictions. And that in large large part equalizes the playing field. Students continued to behave badly. They did then. They did for hundreds of years. They still do. Many students are well-behaved. Let's take a little moment where we remember that not all students get really, really drunk and break all the windows on the main street after a football game. 
some of them are, some of them are actually studying. And the university continued to buy local property, but the Trowns people had recourse that they did not have before. Because nowadays, if you are a badly behaved student, and if you do break a tavern's window on the street after the football game, and if you are on the camera, the, <laughs> the security footage, you get fined and perhaps put in jail. All right. And this, this, so that's new. So townspeople didn't have that ability at the time of the riots and for some time afterwards. In England, this is all going to change, certainly at the Reformation, because the, the universities then no longer belong to the churches. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Is that when it changes in Paris? Do you remember? Because it's because it's complete, there's the church loses the jurisdiction over the main universities. I mean, there's still church schools. That's different, but the students at the church at this any school that's run by churches are not are, are still subject to regular law. Like if you're at Duquesne University, which is a, a religious school, and you do something very bad, as some people have done, it's the local police that are after you, and you don't like go to the chancellor and get fined. That's True, but there is still, because universities have their own internal police force, there's sometimes some gray areas about when you call the external cops. I remember when I was in college, you know, and that was 90 to 94, so maybe things are different now, but at that time there was a desire to kind of handle things internally. Right. So so if you had a sexual assault or if you had theft or, you know, a student trying to die of alcohol poisoning on their 21st birthday at the fraternity, there was a reluctance to pick up the phone and call the, the local cops. There was a desire to handle it internally. Yeah. And there, there, there was pushback on that, but it seems like that, that's still kind of the first passes, well called campus cops. And uh, the fact that universities still have their own police force is, I think, a residual effect of having their own kind of law in the Middle Ages. That would make sense. Certainly huge pieces of the university are coming from how it was set up in the Middle Ages. Yeah, those, th- those things that we wear when we're going around on the stage, for instance, although they're in polyester, not wool. And so, you know, they're not nearly as comfortable. But uh, yeah, no, it, it's, it's still really true that if the university can, it would rather not get involved with the, with the local police. But technically, technically, <laughs> technically, everybody on the university campus is subject to the same law that you would be subject to if you were downtown. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's my, that's my story about St. Scholastica. Oh, and by the way, you might think that St. Scholastica was some kind of like person that did a lot of reading and studying. No, no, it's just a nun whose name St. Scholastica doesn't have anything to do with study. It just sound, It's really great though that the Oxford riot was on St. Scholastica's day. I think know? she was St. Benedict's sister of the one who wrote the Benedictine rule. I think that's his sister. So some reading would have been happening, even if even though she wouldn't have been able to go to university. But no, this this is not about, you know, this is not about the saint of the university. That's not it. It's just a, it was just a saint's day, and it was Saint Scholastica. <laughs> now, Michelle, I believe you also enjoyed this topic. I think if I knew about this, I didn't have enough context when I learned about it before to kind of understand exactly how big of a deal this is. Having having this many people die in a town gown riot is a big deal. And we talked a little bit about how in college towns, these same, same kind of tensions still exist. You know, I've lived in college towns nearly my entire adult life. And, you know, the rent is higher in university towns. 
the rent the rent is like the rent is higher here than it would be in three towns over because of forty thousand undergraduates that are here. And and then many of whom leave for three months in the summer. If you are relying a lot on that income, you've got to figure out how to make it through the summer without it. A lot of the restaurants here actually on the stri- on the strip close for the summer. Wow. So every college town I've ever lived in, there is this tension where the permanent residents, a significant, not all, but a significant percentage is continuing the argument that we would be better off without them. When I lived in Pittsburgh, there were always people arguing that. College Park, Maryland, where the University of Maryland was, and here, right? It's just, it's just kind of goes with the territory. If you have a university and you have a town around it, you have this established relationship of mutual profiteering, Oh, that's a good way to put it. Attempting to take advantage of each other, you know, because it's this isn't going one way. The everything gets overcharged for. Yeah, and sometimes people, sometimes students do get given inferior wine. I actually have no doubt that the tavern was giving that table of students some bad wine. Why not? It really is this kind of relationship about being aggrieved that the other person is trying to do to you what you're doing to them. Yeah, it is a little silly, actually. But I enjoyed reading about this. The internet is awesome. There is tons of stuff about the Saints Glasgow riot on the internet. There's a delightful meme on Reddit with people talking about it that I will give you in the show notes. Oh, good, good. It's great. And I just I just love that. You know, this is one of the nice things about the internet is that more people know about random things. That's true, isn't it? That's true. This is really great if you have like ADHD, because you can like find out all kinds of things about anything that comes into your head. I will. I don't remember how I survived without the internet when I could like look random things up at every moment and thereby get some dopamine. Woohoo. Yeah, you're right. So I've got this I've got this great meme about it that I will put in the show notes for you, but it says college students these days are such snowflakes lol. And then <laughs> it has a picture of a post-apocalyptic warrior who looks a lot like Keanu Reeves. College students in 1355 when they get served bad wine and then <laughs> what he's saying is we've got a city to burn. <laughs> I adore the idea that this riot is known (laughs) in the internet culture enough that somebody made a meme about it and that a whole bunch of other people come in to comment about it, which is hilarious. There are a bunch of videos about it on YouTube. I put my favorite half dozen in the show notes, but there's lots more. Well, what, 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 okay, wait, 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 wait. What is a video about the St. Scholastica riot about? It's like, is it one of those things where somebody with an English accent, on account of their being English, walks around looking at buildings and saying, here in 1355? There's a whole spectrum. There, You have ones that are very scholarly. Oh, you have to do those in a certain tone of voice, I know. Yeah, yes, right. you have so a couple with history professors explaining the things all the way over to the one that is clearly this dude in his dorm room with wigs. And it's pretty funny. I mean, he starts with, you may think you partied hard in your university days, but you didn't party as hard as these Oxford students in 1355. So you have the whole gamut. But what's interesting about them is that they're basically okay. These aren't like the St. Olga ones where you had a lot of inflammatory and kind of 
mm, it was more about making a point than having, you know, not every single one of these is awesome and not every single one of them is interesting, but they're basically providing the facts. It's not inflammatory. And it could have been inflammatory. So I was pleasantly surprised. Certainly could have, because there's two sides to this. And both of them are in the wrong. There is also a historical novel that uses the St. Scholastica riot as the inciting incident for the plot. Unbelievable. Tell me about this. What is this? So this is called The Mark of a Murderer. And it is the 10th book in the Matthew Bartholomew series by Susanna Gregory. The first book in the series is actually called A Plague on Both Their Houses, and it is um, with the Black Death coming to Cambridge. So Matthew Bartholomew is a physician who is in Cambridge. He works at, uh, he's a scholar at Michael House College in Cambridge, which no longer exists in the the author tells us on her website that she picked michael house because it doesn't exist anymore just to just to make her life easier <laughs> it actually was incorporated into trinity college when henry the eighth wanted to found a college on the cheap <laughs> that now that's the way to do it isn't it you just take some others and you kind of like stick them together <laughs> he for real did not want to he wanted the cachet this man, I tell you, he wanted the cachet of founding a college, but he didn't want to pay for building buildings. So he appropriated King's Hall and Michael House and some other buildings and made them into Trinity College. <laughs> but none of Michael House's buildings still survive. All right. Okay. <laughs> Henry VIII, he's just so, he's so awful. He is dreadful. Not a whole lot is is known about Michael House in the 14th century, um, certainly not as much as we would like, because one of the things that happened in the Peasants' Revolt in 1381 is people around Cambridge were mad at the debts that they owed to the college. And they went into Cambridge and dragged out the chest of promissory notes, and we sold our land to the college, and and burned it. <laughs> that would contain not only just the accounts, but also some of the Bursar's Chronicles. Yes. Oh, well. Those records got burnt during the Peasants' Revolt. But that also reminds us that part of the Peasants' Revolt was a town gown issue. It wasn't just about rebel- rebelling against the king and the nobles, that the university was part of the ruling class that was being resisted. You know, I had forgotten that, but that, okay, thank you. So the, the premise of this book, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the plot, but the way it works, the, what's, what's happening is it's set in June of 1355 and Oxford scholars, several of them have fled to Cambridge after the riot in February, but they start getting killed one by one. And what our Matthew Bartholomew, I think it's safe to say this because this is actually on the back of the book, so it's not spoiling anything. Um, What he figures out is that someone started the riot on purpose. Oh, really? Oh, I love that. I'm going to go read that. Yeah, it takes the premise that the riot didn't just happen, that it was prodded, that the people in the tavern were prodded into getting into this conflict. And the first scene of the book is actually us getting 
that scene in the tavern and how then the person who is there as the provocateur. I actually really like this concept because it helps explain why this blew up so fast, that the premise is that this provocateur had weapons on hand that he'd hidden outside. And so as people were getting stirred up, he was just throwing gasoline on the fire. Here, have an axe. Well, you know, since it's true that the bailiffs of the town did indeed egg things on, there's a nice little, there's a way in which it kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's an interesting book. It's because it's the 10th book in the series, it reads okay as a standalone, but it also does make reference to some earlier Mm -hmm. things that happened. It's not what I would call fast paced. (laughs) If you're used to, you know, things boop, 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 boop. The Matthew Bartholomew, the main character is fictional, but his friend, Michael, the proctor of Michael House College is based on a real person. And I will also say that there's fat shaming of Michael that becomes tiresome. I'm just going to be honest. Okay, well, that's no fun. I'm 75% of the way into the book, and a whole humongous piece of Michael's character is the fact that he's large, and I could have done without that. Yeah, yeah. Even if there wasn't, at the time it was written, as much consciousness of how it is that people talk to each other, still kind of the basic rules of how one... Yeah, it's 2006. So I guess, you know, there was certainly less awareness, but I was a little startled by really, really, really? It's cheap. You don't need it. You just don't need it. It's cheap and it's mean. Therefore, tacky. We don't like tacky. So I just wanted to, you know, make sure just to give a little heads up. I am not endorsing the fat shaming. Other than that, it's uh, it's reading pretty well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right then. Yeah, and that is an ongoing series. She's on about 25. So, and I wanted to mention that because when we talked about Ellis Peters and Margaret Fraser, those authors have both passed away. And also Sharon Newman, when we talked about um, A King's Ransom, those authors have passed away. This one's still writing. Yes. Susanna Gregory is still alive and, and still writing. Well, what I would want to know is, is, does the fat shaming continue? Because if so, this needs to get addressed in a letter to the author. Otherwise, if she stops, one can just let it go. Yes, I don't know. There was a stage in my life where a series that has 25 books in it, I would be all like, yeah, I'm excited about this. I'll blow through it. And now I'm like, oh gosh, that makes me tired. I don't have time for this. I don't have time. (laughs) I'm really going to have to think about whether I want to invest. I guess that is one of those pieces of turning 50 where you're like, I have limited time here. I want to read 25 books. It's why it's easier to throw stuff out. I've carried all this stuff with me. I've moved it around the country. I I mean, I always throw some stuff out, but now I'm like, am I going to actually use this in the time I have left? And often the answer is no, I am not. And then I get to get rid of it. I will not be making this thing that I thought I might make. Nope. That was fun. I was delighted to find a book that used the St. Scholastica riot as a as a springboard. And I think that the premise of having the, you know, because we know scholars did leave Oxford and go elsewhere. So having them come to Cambridge and, you know, one of the pieces that I really actually like about the book is the mutual disdain that the, the Cambridge scholars and the Oxford scholars have for each other. <laughs> The Oxford scholars are like, this is a backwater. And the Cambridge scholars are like, you are a bunch of snobs. And anyway, somebody just burnt your town down. So how dare you? So whatever. (laughs) What is that university that's up northern Pennsylvania where everything gets set on fire after the football games? What is that? Penn State? 
Penn State, yes. So we have the Penn State riots very often. And so far, since I have been around and listening to it's like there's been a lot of property damage but nobody's died yeah it actually is hard to imagine a scenario in which a riot would break out in a university town now and a hundred people end up dead that would be that would be a major major thing and this was a major major thing Mm -hmm. it was it was a big deal but there was kind of ongoing violence with you know we had we had the thing where the two scholars got lynched so earlier and so you do actually have breakouts of violence it's just this is a really big one that that they remember for a long time but it's not like it's it's an isolated incident in terms of scope but not in terms of concept yeah 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 and it's the same thing with the paris strike there had been there had been violence and problems before but that got big and the university shut down and said the hell with you So that was our discussion of the St. Scholastica Day Riot, which the townspeople of Oxford are no longer having to pay for. That's nice. (laughs) That's really nice. Because really, after 600 years, you think, really, you could, like, stop paying for that. The next time that you hear from us, we're going to be in Central Europe because we've done St. Olga in Kiev. And we talked about somebody that got killed in Novgorod. But... We haven't really ventured a lot into Central Europe, and we are feeling like it is important to do so because it's important. That's just how it is. It's important. So the next time you hear from us, we're going to be talking about that time in Ruthenia, which doesn't exist anymore, so don't go looking for it, but it's like Belarus and Ukraine, so, you know, Ruthenia. That time that Vashvilikas, the Grand Duke of Lithuania, was murdered. That was in 1267. So it'll be about the same time. I'm going to be uh, further east on the continent. That's where we'll be. This has been True Crime Medieval, where the crimes are just like they are today, only with less technology. We can be found on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and uh, any of the places where the podcasts are hanging out. And you can find us also truecrimemedieval.com. True Crime Medieval is all one word. And you can leave comments and you can get a hold of us there. And you can also let us know if there's any medieval crimes that you think that we should look at. And we'll probably put them on our list. How many pages have we got of things that we're going to be doing? You told me, Michelle, earlier. 16? <laughs> yeah, we're not running out of crimes anytime soon. We, we got some crimes. Yeah. yeah. You know, because people, people were behaving very badly. And especially now that we're opening, really, we're really focusing on not just Western Europe, but Central Europe. There's even more crimes because that's a lot of area, isn't it? It's got people in it. And you know what people are, Michelle? People are badly behaved. I'm just telling you. Anyway, you can find us and um, you can leave comments and that would be lovely. And yeah, so yeah, we're true crime medieval. We like, we like to talk about things that happen in the Middle Ages all over the Middle Ages. All over. Bye. Bye.